biggest surprise to me over the last 10, 15 years is the spread of the Latino community beyond the major centers that we normally associate with uh, California, Texas, New York, Florida, into virtually every part of the country. Legendary journalist Juan Gonzalez is here to discuss a new edition of his landmark book, Harvest of Migrants. You're listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. The program airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and wherever you get your podcasts. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, novelists, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. I'll be back in a moment with Juan Gonzalez. My guest today is Juan Gonzalez, an award-winning broadcast journalist and investigative reporter based in New York City. He is the founder of Democracy Now!, a global independent news hour which broadcasts daily across the United States and Canada and countries around the world. It is watched and listened to by millions of people every day, and it has grown to be one of the leading U.S.-based independent daily news broadcasts in the world. Juan Gonzalez is a two-time recipient of the prestigious George Polk Award in Journalism and the author of the landmark book, Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. This book is just being released in its third edition. Um, This book is Harvest of Empire is widely taught in classrooms and was also adapted into a documentary film. This anticipated, updated uh, edition arrives well-timed in an election year and with relatively new census data to consider. I can't think of anyone with greater insight into the global Latino population than our guest today, Juan Gonzalez. Welcome to Real Fiction. Uh, thanks, Lori, and it's great to be here with you. It's an honor to have you on the program. And as I mentioned, the third edition of this big book, it's a landmark book, um, is, is being released as the United States is looking ahead to midterm general elections. And I recently saw this headline in the New York Times. Hispanics are the new swing voters. And we also have relatively new census data, which is something that you've been looking at for years. What did you want to give particular focus to as you updated this book? Well, what I tried to do, and there's about 125 new pages of, uh, of content uh, in the book, is to try to update what has happened in the growing Latino community of the United States over the past uh, 10, 11 years, since the last uh, edition came out in 2011. Uh, and uh, so I was seeking really to to update all the all the data. And of course, we are a country that loves data, uh, and yes. as well as then to try to... Uh, 
tell the human stories behind the data. And I think the the biggest uh, takeaway clearly from the 2020 census was that the Latino population had grown, according to the Census Bureau, to 62 million people, about 18% Mm. of the population. But that that is actually an undercount. The Census Bureau later uh, conceded when they did their audit that they undercounted Latinos by about 5%, uh, another 3 million people. Uh, and of course, they never include in those figures the 3 million U.S. citizens of the island of Puerto Rico, which is still part of uh, a territory of mm-hmm. the United States. So if you add all those, the undercounts and the people of Puerto Rico, we're talking about close to 70 million people. One out of every five Americans is of uh, Latin American descent. It's an, an enormous continuing change in the size of the population. And it's even more so when you look at the young people. Uh, today, uh, the state of California 54% of all the public school children in California are Latino. In Texas, 52% of all the public school children are Latino. In Arizona, 45% are Latino. Even in places of New Jersey, 29%. You go to the South, North Carolina, 18% of the public school children of North Carolina are Latino today. Uh, Georgia, 16%. So we're, not only is there a huge growth in the population, but because of the uh, the skewed uh, youth of the Latino population, uh, the future uh, adults of the country will be even more Latino than uh, today. So I think that's an astonishing change, a transformation of the country that has continued unabated now for close to 30, 40 years, the growth in the population. Those are astonishing numbers. And the when I was reading about the census data, one data point really stayed with me, and it tracks very uh, consistently with everything you just said. And it was that Hispanics accounted for about half the country's growth over the past decade. I'm curious, as you went through those numbers, um, um, and you have been very, very uh, consistent and accurate with your predictions about the growth in the country. Was there a region of the country or a particular state that, that surprised you as you were updating this edition? Yeah, I think the biggest surprise to me over the last 10, 15 years is the spread of the Latino community beyond the major centers that we normally associate with uh, California, Texas, New York, Florida, into virtually every part of the country. For instance, in the, in the book, I, I talk about how uh, there are so many Latinos in the state of Washington, for instance, uh, or, or in Idaho, uh, that you are now getting um, uh, Latino politicians, young people elected to uh, city councils in uh, in places like Yakima uh, or uh, hmm. in, uh, in, in small towns in Idaho uh, that uh, never before had seen a presence of Latinos. Uh, and of course, in the South, uh, Georgia, North Carolina, Arkansas, I recently a couple of years ago, I was invited to speak uh, at Fayetteville, Arkansas, in uh, in northwest Arkansas. And I was stunned to discover that in a place like Fayetteville, uh, some of the schools had as much as 20% of their pupil enrollment as uh, Latinos, uh, because that's a big area for the chicken processing industry. It's obviously a Walmart uh, uh, headquarters is there. Uh, and um, there had been a huge increase in the recruitment of Guatemalans and Mexicans to work in the poultry uh, industry of uh, 
of Northwest Arkansas, and many of them ended up settling there. And uh, I spoke to businessmen and farmers who said that some of their towns had been practically dead uh, until they started recruiting more and more Guatemalan and Mexican workers and who have now been reviving the downtowns of a lot of the small towns in Northwest Arkansas. I would, uh, there was not, none of this anti-immigrant fervor in Arkansas that you hear in places like Texas uh, uh, or um, or other parts of the country, uh, because uh, in many of these small, in small town America, uh, Latinos have increasingly been moving into these towns and helping to revive the economies of these towns. Really interesting to think about some communities embracing this um, increase in population, whereas others still feel reticent. And this is a perfect opportunity for me to ask something that stayed with me as I was reading your book. Um, you have a chapter uh, titled Immigrants, Old and New, Closing Borders of the Mind. And oh, did I love this chapter. You address some stereotypes that can sometimes be recycled in uh, tense election periods or just tense times. And I would like to ask you about um, myth number four that um, appears in the book, and it is this. Latino immigrants take jobs away from U.S. citizens. And I find this particularly interesting to consider given that we have this sort of national resignation happening in the United States. There's even a hashtag, I quit. I wonder when you think about that, how do you square this myth and reality in light of what's happening in the workforce in this country? Well, I think the reality is, and um, and we have to face it. I'm a baby boomer, right? I was born in uh, 1947, and my 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 father and his two brothers were all drafted out of Puerto Rico into the U.S. Army to fight a World War II. They they not speaking a word of English. <laughs> they were all drafted to go to Europe and fight. And when we came here uh, in the uh, late 40s, uh, there there was already enormous demand for Latino labor. And in fact, much of the migration of the 50s and 60s was a direct result of actual recruitment of people uh, by companies to come work because there was a labor shortage uh, during uh, World War II and then during the Korean War. Uh, Bethlehem Steel recruited 500 Mexicans and Puerto Ricans to go to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania to work in the steel mills. U.S. Steel uh, recruited hundreds of uh, Puerto Ricans to go work in Lorain, Ohio, in the steel mills uh, uh, in Lorain, Ohio. Uh, uh, the the meatpacking industry in Iowa and Kansas began recruiting Mexican workers to fill the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the meat plants of the, middle, uh, of the Midwest. So there's always been a... Uh, Latinos have functioned more or less as a reserved labor force for the United States. In good times, more and more recruited in. In bad times, they're expelled out. Uh, for in, yeah. during the during the the uh, the Great Depression, under President Hoover, uh, as many as five hundred thousand Mexicans were just rounded up around the country and shipped out of the country uh, in trains by uh, the federal government. Then uh, subsequently during the recession of the 1950s, Operation Wetback during the Eisenhower years, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people were deported. Uh, and we're, we've seen that also happening during the Great Recession here. Now what happens? 
the country, as you say, is facing a labor shortage. And so is it any surprise that suddenly we're seeing increased numbers of people from Latin America coming up? Because they're all on WhatsApp and on their phones, they're in communication with their their cousins and their and their and their sons and, and their relatives in the United States. And everyone knows that employers are looking for workers. Uh, and so this issue of Latin America functioning as a reserve labor force for the United States has been going on for years. And the reality is that the baby boomers uh, uh, are growing old and they're all retiring and they all need someone to take care of the nursing homes that they're going to or the hospitals and the healthcare facilities. And the reality is that all the nations that fought in World War II and lost uh, huge numbers of people, France, Germany, the United States, Britain, and Japan are growing old. And they're going to need more and more young workers, and they're not producing as many young workers. So the reality is that no matter what we say about clamping down on immigration, the economics of our situation require more and more young workers. And where are they going to come from? They're going to come from Latin America. They're going to come from Africa. They're going to come from Asia. And so that's why France is facing the same situation. England is facing the same situation, Germany and the United States. My guest again today is Juan Gonzalez. He is the author of Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. It is just being released in its third edition. And you mentioned something about um, the Latino community and the connection to their home countries through WhatsApp, the internet. In the book, you write about the role of community media and public affairs programming by the Spanish language press and the influence that um, it has in those communities and really in the context of galvanizing activism. Um, how do you see this um, evolving and taping sh and taking shape? Do you see more unity across um, the, the different um, and specific ethnicities or more individualism? Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, the Spanish language media have played a, a critical and in, important role in sort of communicating to a population that for the most part has been ignored or almost invisible. And I, the best example I recall was during the, the giant immigration marches of 2006, uh, when it was, it was essentially the Spanish language media that alerted uh, the immigrant community to the need to come out in uh, in peaceful mass protest for immigration reform. The English language media was largely ignoring the community or, or in some cases with some of the right wing radio and cable news shows uh, uh, like, like Lou Dobbs and, and uh, Hannity and, uh, and some of the others, they were actually stoking anti-immigrant fervor. So the, the Spanish language press has played an important role uh, uh, in that uh, in terms of building sort of a, you know, because Latino community is complex. It's made up of many different nationalities, uh, ethnic groups that have their own history, whether it's Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, uh, Venezuelans, Salvadorans, Guatemalans. They all have their particular ethnic histories, just as the Irish, the Italian, the Polish, the fin the Swedes, uh, the Scots and the Germans who came in the 19th century had their own particular ethnic histories. Uh, but what has happened increasingly is that the Latino community, the sons and daughters of those uh, 
ethnic migrants, uh, a product sometimes of intermarriage. In, in Los Angeles, uh, Salvadoran marries a Mexican uh, and their children now have a new identity. Uh, in, uh, in Miami, a Colombian marries a, a Cuban and their children have a new identity. In New York, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans intermarry. And so what's happened is we've been creating a new Latino consciousness in the United States that really is not the same as those migrants who came in the first generation and the second generation, but is not yet fully uh, a part of the United States or, or Anglo society. So we've created this new entity, the Latino in America, uh, in the United States. Mm. Uh, and those young people increasingly uh, not only they they are they they borrow and learn from African American and white culture and society, but they learn from their own uh, other Latino groups, and it's a whole new reality that has emerged in the last twenty thirty years here in the United States. Yeah, and I I think that still many people, many U.S. citizens still do not understand the complexity of Latino views. And some even assume that when it comes to just a general um, issue like immigration, which will obviously be a, a big issue in the midterm elections, they maybe think that there's just this monolithic um, vote, but that's likely not going to be the case. When someone asks you, and, and I'll ask you, um, about the Latino views on national immigration policy, how do you how do you break that down? How do you assess um, how uh, the different nationalities, given what you've just said, how they may respond at the ballot box? Well, I think um, that's a very important question. It's also I think relates to what you said earlier about the New York Times reporting about how uh, Latinos have become more of a swing vote. If you read the first edition of my book, which came out in 2000, uh, I dealt with this issue of is there a conservative uh, trend within the Latino community? And in fact, uh, I made the exact point that what has happened is the uh, Hispanics and Latinos and increasingly the Asian community are emerging as a third force in American politics. They they don't they neither fit into the uh, the black-white divide that the country has been so fixated on for so long. And also, they have much many class contradictions among them. Um, for instance, the fastest-growing Latino group in the United States right now is Venezuelans, right? Several hundred thousand Venezuelans have, have come to this country in the last few years. Uh, they are very similar to the Cuban migrants that came in the 60s and 70s, more educated, uh, more politically conservative uh, uh, than, for instance, the Puerto Rican or the uh, Mexicans or Salvadorans who are more, uh, there's fewer professional folks uh, in those groups. They are generally more working class or come from the countryside, and they generally have uh, on many issues, uh, especially on class issues, a more liberal bent. Uh, and uh, so the reality is that every one of these groups has class differences among themselves. And when they come to the United States, those are reflected. So basically, uh, the, we heard a lot during the 2020 election how Latinos were shifting more conservative and actually were shifting more toward President Trump. The basic facts of the Latino 
uh, community's political views has not changed dramatically. Uh, I said in 2000 that basically a third of the Latino community generally votes in conservative ways, even on issues of immigration. Two thirds generally vote in more liberal ways uh, uh, and uh, even on issues of immigration. And in fact, that's been that's the basic framework. Uh, George Bush got 40 percent of the Latino vote when he ran for president. Ronald Reagan got 40 percent, 38 percent of the Latino vote when he ran for president. Uh, so um, Donald Trump was uh, far less popular <laughs> among Latino communities <laughs> than some of those. But he's sort of in the middle of where uh, the Latino community has fallen. And remember, for instance, look at Texas or look at the border. There's been a huge immigration industrial complex built there to seal the border. Thousands and thousands of Latinos have been hired into the Border Patrol. Uh, they generally are more conservative in their viewpoints. And their job is to keep people out and their relatives and the people they relate to. Uh, these are good paying jobs in the Border Patrol. And so now um, there is a more conservative bent in the Latino community along the border precisely because of the immigration industrial complex that has developed incarceration centers and, and drones and, uh, uh, and all kinds of other efforts to seal the border. So I think that generally speaking, the Latino community is about two thirds liberal democratic, one third uh, a conservative Republican, and on image, issues of immigration, it breaks down that way as well. But within particular nationalities, uh, there may be sharp swings uh, in difference uh, from the overall norm. When I was thinking about our conversation today, I ran across a headline that, that came through uh, in the Neiman Lab, um, which covers um, issues of, about journalism. And the headline said, Despite the struggles and chaos, no regrets. And there was a poll taken um, among, among journalists, and 70% of the journalists polled said that they were proud of their work and would choose the journalism profession again. Juan Gonzalez, what drew you to the profession of journalism, and how does that headline that I just read resonate with you? Well, I think the uh, what drew me to journalism was one that I love to write, uh, two that I always like to get to the bottom of things, and there's no better way to get to the bottom of a problem than to be paid to actually uh, study, research, and I interview people about it. And uh, so uh, I was drawn to the fact that I could make a living from what I'd love to do, which was write, and uh, and also to could be paid to spend the rest of my life learning things, which is what journalists do. You know, we uh, none of us are experts in a lot of the issues and, and events that we cover, but we rapidly uh, gain a, a working knowledge of a particular subject just by the necessity of having to produce a story on deadline about it. So I think that uh, that's what drew me to it. I mean, the profession is uh, has gone through a enormous upheaval of of late, it's not the first time uh, that journalism and media have gone through upheaval. Uh, the reality is that every advance in new communications technology upsets the old order and requires a new imagination of how news and information will be reached the the public. Uh, and um, 
but I'm I'm heartened by all the young people who still believe that they want to get into journalism. And uh, I was quite proud of some of my students at Rutgers University because I teach investigative journalism. Uh, they won the the top prize uh, this year from uh, the investigative reporters and editors uh, for a series of articles they did in the student newspaper on how Rutgers University was misusing the hundreds of millions of dollars in federal emergency COVID money that it received uh, from the uh, from the state of New Jersey uh, and from the federal government. Uh, and they won the top prize for their work on that. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm uh, inspired by young people who still believe that they want they want to get into a job that can make a difference, can change the way that people see the world uh, and uh, can enlighten people and uh, hopefully to become better citizens. My guest today is Juan Gonzalez. He is the author of Harvest of Empire. He is also the founder of Democracy Now! This is an incredible book that is well-timed in its third edition. And this has just been an incredibly enlightening and educational conversation for me. So Juan Gonzalez, thank you so much for spending some time with Real Fiction today. Oh, and thank you for having me. listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com, where you can learn more about today's guests and all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening.